Section 52, Alleviating Bloatware, First Attempt. Microsoft's Office 97 contains 4,500 commands for features both useful and arcane. Wall Street Journal, November 1996. Features. That's all we ever talked about. Adding features. Fixing features. Missing features to be added or fixed. Office achieved the position it achieved, as precarious as it seemed now with the rise of the World Wide Web and Internet, by adding more features with more regular releases of new versions than competitors. Reviews focused on features, and we won reviews. We had built a team, an engine to add features. As fast as Clippy could appear after hitting the F1 key, it seemed as though our greatest strength and our most significant asset, features, had become a great weakness. We went from dominating with more well-executed features to being crushed by the perception of the weight of our products. The industry latched on to the expression bloatware to describe products that seemed to have too much, too many features, too many megabytes, too slow, too difficult to use, just simply too much. It was one thing to develop a strategy to address a customer problem we had created, albeit inadvertently, when it came to total cost of ownership. We even committed to building fewer productivity features, despite the internal backlash over personal productivity moving to priority six. It was entirely another thing, however, to look at what we had built and be pressured into admitting customers didn't want or need it. Still, customers were buying Office by the tens of millions of copies. Were customers, press, and analysts right? Did we have a product problem, a technology issue, or a marketing challenge, or some combination? Of course, the development team was certain marketing wasn't convincing people how amazing the product was. Marketing was certain the dev team was not delivering business value. Prests and analysts were relentless. What could we do? Our hometown Seattle Times reporter Paul Andrews wrote, Already some have nominated Office for Bloatware of the Year. While unclear who some were, and knowing there were no actual awards, thankfully, that was a sharp dig in an otherwise positive Office 97 review. The online version contains that review. Worse, however, was the headline in the Wall Street Journal that simply stated, Microsoft may face backlash against bloatware, right there on the front of the marketplace section. The article used every possible way to explain the scale of Office as big, from two years and several hundred million dollars in R&D to appetite of companies for such programs, it did not let up. The requisite quote at the start of the article from an IT professional was brutal. Couldn't care less. There was nothing from a business point of view that was a compelling reason to upgrade. To this day, I still get sick a sick feeling in my stomach from the box in the story stating, Microsoft's Office 97 contains 4,500 commands for features both useful and arcane. Each one of those features meant something we were so proud of and represented real effort. Plus, during the interview, the reporter kept pushing for ways to talk about how big Office 97 was. I resisted and let this slip in a moment of pride, only for it to be used against me. I added this article to the binder I carried around and had it at the ready whenever the topic of bloatware came up. The online version contains the Wall Street Journal article. Bloat was a constant source of strain in conversations with field sales, in the executive briefing center, and with press. Each time the topic came up, I used my go-to answer, which was that there was a set of features that everyone in office used, and those are easily understood, such as open, save, print, copy, paste, and a host of basic formatting commands. Everyone nods. Then I would talk about how each application has features that a few people used, perhaps footnotes, financial formulas, or animations in PowerPoint. Most people would agree with that. 
A common variant of this discussion was, your bloat is my crucial feature. Or, yes, this is bloat, except that one time a year I need to use it. Most PowerPoint presentations are minimal when it comes to production values, except for that one time a year when the stakes are high and a huge effort goes into making a great show. A favorite example that few claim to use mail merge in Word until they find out they need to send out holiday cards or invitations to a large group. And yes, it even worked with email. Bloat rarely considered the frequency of use and often presumed infrequent use meant no use. I would point out the significant business value of Office was that any person could use their set of features in, in any one tool and seamlessly share files and collaborate with someone who was way more advanced than they were. For example, I don't know how to draft a contract and use redlining, but a lawyer could use those tools and send me the contract for review. Intellectually, people understood, but almost always would shrug and still say that the software was bloated. To each constituency, bloat implied something different. There were mundane answers like how much disk space or RAM Office took up. These Moore's Law measures were easy to complain about, but were especially incorrect relative to competitive products. Office was far and away the best. Unfortunately, no one ever experienced more than one product they used, so if Office seemed slow and all conventional wisdom was about needing to upgrade hardware with more memory or a laptop that ran out of disk space, then bloated office was to blame. Some believe that literally having too much stuff on the screen is what made the software slower or bloated. There was some truth to this in that the user interface of office, the menus, toolbars, wizards, and more, was rapidly growing and exceeding the available pixels on most common screen sizes, especially on new laptops. While desktop computers were getting larger monitors, laptops, still uncommon, were also a generation behind in the amount they could fit on the screen. The industry analysts believe in something of a combination of all these factors. There was a view that the older legacy features of the product were weighing the programs down with old code or cruft, and that if the product could just be factored, a technical programming word to break up the code into smaller pieces, then we would have much sleeker and more tuned products that took less memory, less screen real estate, etc. Analysts viewed the disruptive technologies of Java, HTML components discussed previously as somewhat magical answers to bloat. Frustratingly, these new technologies not only made for better products, but the results would be bloat-free as if by magic of the programming language. That was at least the perception. In moments of frustration, I would point out that the obvious, that if the product didn't do very much, then of course it would be less bloated. There's a good lesson in potentially disruptive technologies and how all the positives flow to them and none of the negatives with little proof along the way. These stories and definitions of bloat were endless. I received letters, emails, and every briefing center visit offered more anecdotes. It was exhausting. Perhaps the worst part about every one of these encounters was that after complaining about bloat, the customer would invariably start talking about new features in the product they so desperately required. And as if to rub salt in the wound, a good portion of the time, these requests were already somewhere in the product submerged in the user interface. We had a good deal of innovation about bloat, but not a lot of hard data. While we had our instrumented studies and knew without a doubt that much of the surface area of the product was used in practice, in total, but not by any single person, we were working with limited data sets. It would not be until the next release that we would greatly expand our use of the internet to understand real-world usage. When companies in the 1990s needed to understand customers, they did focus groups. 
Researchers fanned out around the world on a series of focus groups to better arrive at a shared meaning of bloatware. While we did not learn anything new, we did obtain more anecdotes and lots of hours of videotape of people complaining about the product. We had to do something. One way we reduced the perception of bloat was to not install less frequently used bits of Office on the hard drive, and rather to install them on demand. This was a feature designed specifically for IT professionals who were touting the advantages of disruptive components. In every story about components, especially those built with Java, the idea of loading features as you need them on demand was an advantage. The total cost of ownership efforts built an entire infrastructure to load frequently less features of Office in this manner, conserving disk space, not bothering anyone. IT professionals hated this in practice and immediately loaded everything onto the PC to avoid any on-demand. Exasperated, we learned that the idea was someone, mostly an executive, might be on an airplane wanting to use a template or a help file that was not loaded on the PC, and seeing the please insert your CD-ROM error message was unacceptable. Why take the risk, they would say. It's just extra disk space. Frustrating. We really wanted to do something about the feeling of bloat. How could we make Office feel lighter weight, less overwhelming, and more approachable? Hanging on an interior office relight near Dean Hakamovich's office, the whole release was an old cartoon from a tech magazine titled Office 2000, proclaiming what a future word processor might look like. The drawing was of a Word document surrounded on every side by toolbars, buttons, widgets, and more. Almost the entire product screen was consumed by interface widgets with a tiny little spot to type. This really was the bloat we needed to fix. But how? We knew the features were used, and we couldn't just delete them. The online version includes this early internet meme. A common refrain from focus groups and our own intuition was that customers really wanted Office to be tailored to their own usage patterns. It seemed obvious that if Office just knew what customers wanted to do and only presented those options, then it would be more valuable, rather than pushing a bunch of features that might confuse or slow down work. Rooted in our own history was a hint at a possible answer. A decade earlier, as the Macintosh and first Windows versions of Word and Excel were being built, the teams implemented a feature known as short menus. This was an early answer to a common PC paradigm of sort of a beginner and expert mode. Even Macintosh had two modes for the desktop, a standard one and a simplified one called Simple Finder. Short menus would show only the most common menu commands, One could easily choose a menu command, the irony was not lost, full menus to show off all the possible commands in the product. Switching back and forth could be done just by choosing the menu. It was supposed to make the products more approachable. Instead, it just introduced another menu command that made little sense and added a step to using many commands, assuming one even knew to consider this modality in the first place. This idea came and went with the early PC era along with the idea of expert modes. As the products evolved and added toolbars, the idea of simply hiding menu commands made little sense given the importance of toolbars. But toolbars also contributed to a perception of bloat. Dean was also leading the user interface program manager team in the office product unit, along with a college hire from Cornell, Mike Arcuri, email M. Arcuri, created a new interaction model based on a prototype idea originating originating on the development team. We were certain this helped reduce bloat. We called this IntelliMenus, as in IntelliSense, as a working name, and ultimately marketing referred to them generically as intelligent menus. 
The implementation was a smarter take on full menus, short menus, and also applied to the toolbars. It built on our investment in the unified code base for menus and toolbars that was working so well for us. It was clever, intelligent, and used our code architecture well. The online version includes a demonstration of IntelliMenus. The Office 9 feature was subtle. First, it was always on. By default, the product curated short menus based on the instrumented studies. We were confident of what was used frequently. Second, MicroCurie created a series of heuristics to determine if a user might be intentionally browsing for a command or lost trying to find a command. And right at that time, the short menus or toolbars automatically expanded to full menus. A user could also click on what looked like an arrow key down at the bottom to manually expand to full menus. These intelligent menus were an IntelliSense answer to the age-old idea of having special modes that were hard to find and often confusing, and instead they learned from how the product was used and adapted over time. We had built a personalized office. The feature proved attractive in early reviews. In press briefings, we were lauded for taking on bloat and no longer ignoring the rampant problem. While most feedback was positive as expected, in beta feedback, those who understood the product felt this was a bit of who moved my cheese scenario. Interestingly, the Office Advisory Council representing Lord Desktops had a unique take. There were some views suggesting that shorter menus be permanently on so as not to confuse people along the lines of the old short menus feature. Others were concerned about the training costs and, in particular, what a how-to call would be like if the person at the other end of the phone could not be certain of which menus or toolbar buttons were visible. Again, as with the trendy on-demand, the reality is the enterprise IT world aimed for stability and completeness over anything dynamic or adaptive. Intelligent menus were a solution to take on bloat of known features. They did not solve the challenge of discovering new features. We were keen to add new features as well as make the existing features easier to use. That included how Office could better support creating documents by gathering up information from the web to create the document. Researching a topic of interest changed dramatically with the World Wide Web. Instead of writing memos or slides from paper notes or cards, research was increasingly based on browsing web pages and stealing bits and pieces from around the World Wide Web. The workflow for this was incredibly difficult. See something on the browser, select and copy, then back to the document to click paste over and over again. Taking a few different parts from the same document was a window switching pain. Dean's idea was to be able to keep, just keep clicking copy, select more content, copy again, and over and over again without returning Word to paste every single research find. Then, when ready, the user went back to Word or PowerPoint and clicked paste, 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 and paste over and over. This was also a great use of HTML because the formatting from the web could be maintained, at least using Internet Explorer. The Office Clipboard was a fantastic demo showing integration across Office and any browser and even other applications. The brilliance of the feature was that it created a whole new scenario without adding more menu commands, no bloat, or no new features to learn, sort of. The feature activated if the user copied twice in a row quickly, and no one really did that by accident. We were, however, quite stuck on how to make this feature more discoverable so the user would know all those bits were sitting in a magical clipboard. We were constrained by the perceptions of bloat, yet like so many new features, we needed a way to surface it to customers and decided to take the same route as autocorrect, which was a minimal user interface. The Office clipboard was a notable example of a feature already in one product, Word at least, and then added to all of Office, but was routinely requested by customers. 
The feature was demanded so frequently that there were dozens of separate add-ins, products, and downloadable tools that offered a shared clipboard features. As was often the case, when a feature is part of a large and complex product bundle, it was often easier to find a separate standalone tool that did what was needed instead of finding the feature in a big suite. The online version includes a demo of the Office Clipboard feature. The struggle of discoverability and bloat continued to be enormously challenging for Office. It was fascinating how our skills at creating features exceeded our ability to make those features discoverable or create a product overall that remained easy to use for the broadest set of customers. This was an existential problem for our business, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out. One worry is a market nearing saturation. And if people have the product and feel it does everything they need, then our business is shrinking. This kept us up at night, but not for the business reasons as much as the reality that we just knew people were constantly asking for Office to do more and to make it easier and faster to get work done. I used to say Office 97 is hardly the ultimate achievement in creating and analyzing and presenting information. We know we can do better. We were primarily competing with our previous version, also bloated with all anyone might ever need, and that proved to be a tricky situation. This was especially difficult in the enterprise market, where the benefit of any new feature was weighed against the cost and challenges of deployment and retraining. Given the investment customers made in that prior version, we were limited at how much we could market against it. It was not lost on me that the competitors we did have, Star Office, SmartSuite, Perfect Office, Aria Hangul, and Kingsoft WPS outside the U.S., were consistently adding features we already had and touting them as new. Each was making the mistake of competing head-on with the incumbent. It would be years before a product would take web-based productivity tools in a different direction. Otherwise, there were no lean or unbloated alternative products people could point to that were in use. There's much more going on to bloat than we would need to discover. What was the relationship of Office to Windows and the rest of the PC? How were PC problems such as grinding hard drives, degraded performance over time, or just flakiness, bugs, and instability related to bloat? How much of the problem of bloat was being caused by enterprise IT software that people disliked? Who likes their work software? And worse, the security and management tools that took ever-increasing control of the PC. The problem of bloat was bigger than just Office. It was the product's ubiquity and, frankly, high customer satisfaction, no matter how we measured it, that made it a symbol of a much broader challenge for Microsoft. In this work, I want to share the lessons with plenty of context and not a lot of certainty about how lessons might apply in different contexts. The notion that products get easier to use and more approachable simply by hiding or deleting features is something I've seen disproven repeatedly. Rarely can simplicity come from simply hiding capabilities that people use. In fact, as we saw in this story, often in the process of, of obscuring features, the product becomes more difficult to use. Lessons learned. I wish I could say that slowed our feature machinery, but it did not. We were doing more than ever, faster than ever, but we were at least more aware of the challenges we were faced and every day becoming more empathetic. The dialogue around adding features changed from how fast to how well, from must have to will it work. We were maturing as a team. This became more important as the demands for features to support broader and much less clear strategic initiatives increased as we built Office 9.